0: Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised.
0: If you're a regular listener to Crime Beat, this episode is going to be a bit different. We're taking a departure from our usual format of sharing stories of victims of crime and the impact on their families. The novel coronavirus has affected all of us. We know many people have lost loved ones to COVID-19 and our hearts are with those families. As you're listening to this, there are amazing people putting their lives on the line to keep us going. Those working in essential services that includes food production, delivery service, people working in grocery stores and drug stores, sanitation and cleaning staff, pharmacists, and of course, healthcare workers. The doctors, nurses, and hospital staff that are all putting their lives on the line for us. COVID-19 is no doubt going to continue to affect us for quite some time, weeks, probably months, and there's still a lot of uncertainty. Almost every aspect of our lives is being impacted by this pandemic. That includes public safety, police, judges, lawyers, those who keep the wheels of justice turning. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Lately, I've been receiving a lot of questions about how the pandemic is impacting our justice system and what that means for you. As a journalist, it's my job to get you answers and try to clear up some of the misconceptions. I've gone to a number of experts within the justice system to answer those questions. This is a special episode of Crime Beat, entirely focused on crime, the courts, and COVID-19. When you need help, first responders, police, fire, and EMS all work to get you that help as quickly as possible. Each knows the risk of working on the front lines. And every situation is unpredictable. So let's start with police and the challenges they're facing in this new reality.
2: Uh, You don't know who's going to be at a scene when you arrive. You don't know who's going to get involved. You often don't know what kind of risks you're facing, whether they're environmental or risks related to weapons or people. So that's sort of the normal day-to-day environment that our our police officers work in. Uh, We already have uh, a challenging uh, work environment when it comes to wellness and mental health.
0: That's Tom Stamatakis. He's the president of the Canadian Police Association, which is the union for 60,000 police personnel across Canada.
2: I'll throw in, you know, this pandemic where, uh, you know, the messaging from our public health officers right across the country is all about, you know, social isolating, avoiding uh, interacting with other people, uh, and all kinds of other measures that uh, public health officers have put in place to try and um, slow down the spread of of this virus, COVID. But our our members are still expected to go to work, and so it just it just heightens the level of anxiety because you're you're now doing exactly what public health officers are telling you not to do, telling most citizens not to do. You're having to interact with people, and we understand that. I mean. It, it, there's no option for the police to, to sort of opt out, we, we have a, a moral and legal obligation to continue to protect the public and enforce the law and um, make sure that our, our society remains civil. So, 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 there's a heightened level of anxiety just, just related to that, more than normally exists.
0: Superintendent Steve Barlow is in charge of the COVID-19 response for the Calgary Police Service. He echoes those concerns and says the pandemic is adding a new level of uncertainty police are being forced to deal with.
3: You know, the anxiety for just, not just our officers, but the community, you can feel it every single day. Our officers, they're living with this while they're at work, they're living with it while they're at home, and that anxiety makes it, it, it's hard on everybody. Sometimes situations like this truly force you to think outside of the box. Our officers are making making sure there's a little bit more distance between them and the people we're dealing with. But unfortunately, when you're a police officer, there's going to be a time and a place where you do need to step in and potentially be in close contact with these people. Uh, we have had one incident of a uh, of a suspect spitting on one of our officers, and that uh, that person was charged with assault. And we will see how that unravels in court once we get there.
0: That officer needed to go into self-isolation, meaning there's one less officer on the street for at least two weeks until they're deemed safe to go back to work. Unfortunately, that incident Superintendent Barlow referred to wasn't a one-off.
2: We're in a very uncertain and and at times disturbing environment with this pandemic. Uh, It's creating anxiety for, for the members I represent, but also anxiety for the public. So one of the most disturbing things that you know I've heard about or come across or discussed with members is is this idea that now we have uh, people that we are interacting with where we do have to take some enforcement action now, saying uh, that they're infected and so they're they're exposing our members intentionally and doing things like coughing uh, onto members or or trying to. Um, Indicate that they're contaminating contaminating members, and I, I just th- that is very disturbing, and it's and quite frankly, it's it's very disappointing as well. There've been uh, reported cases across the country, including in my home service in Vancouver. We had two incidents just recently where where that's happened. Um, that then triggers a whole series of protocols.
0: People are asked to stay home wherever possible to self-isolate and maintain social distancing. With that, the types of calls police are responding to have changed a bit.
3: We we have seen a significant dip in our uh, house b um, but we're starting to see a creep up in our business break-ins. Um, and that's the area that we, we predicted that would start taking place because, of course, you take everybody, you send them home, they're not in their business district. So we've really uh, stepped up our, our uh, patrols out in those areas, um, hoping to alleviate that problem and also working with those business owners about making sure that there isn't stuff visible through the windows, uh, making sure that they are locked up, uh, that their cash drawers are open if they happen to be a business with a cash drawer. So we've really taken a, a different stance that way.
0: There can be a darker side to more people staying home. It can create added strains on relationships, and that's increased concerns about domestic abuse.
3: You know what, that one's a tough one, we're predicting it. Um, we have not seen a significant increase in those uh, in the domestics right now. Now we do know through all of the partners we work with that some of their phone lines, uh, they're having more calls into them, so I'm going to assume that they're getting advice, but our, uh, our actual stats have not uh, taken a, a, a significant increase.
4: So people who experience domestic violence, it usually doesn't start with a phone call to the police. That is their very last option available to them when things have gotten so bad, they feel like no other option is available to them. And in fact, most people who are experiencing domestic violence never call police. Actually, most people who are experiencing domestic violence don't even call a service providing agency. Most of them tell friends or family members and then deal with it that way.
0: That's Andrea Silverstone, the executive director of Suggest Domestic Violence Prevention Society, an organization that works to break the cycle of violence. She says during the pandemic, family and friends aren't able to offer support in quite the same way that they used to.
4: So um, one of the things that we know is that um, due to COVID-19 it's a perfect storm of a few things. One is is that normal things that are available to people to reach out to support and or try and deal with the violence in their life like going to work every day, having a break from their abuser, reaching out to friends and family members, perhaps even couch surfing are no longer available to them. Um, The second thing is is that we know that natural disasters as well as economic downturns create a rise in domestic violence. We've seen that from everything from From the floods and fires in Alberta to Hurricane Katrina and the fires um, in Australia. And so all of those things together combined are creating a perfect storm for rates of domestic violence to rise. We've already seen them rise in Alberta by about 20 to 45 percent. And in places that are a few weeks ahead of us in terms of uh, COVID-19, those rates have gone up by threefold.
0: If you are a victim of abuse, there is still help available.
4: If you're someone who's experiencing violence and is in a situation where it's really hard to reach out for help because you're stuck with your abuser, uh, there's all sorts of ways that uh, our sector has made so that it's as easy as possible to reach out for help. There's the picking up of a phone, um, there's text to chat lines, there's SMS text lines, so you don't even need access to the internet um, in order to be able to connect. And so there's lots of ways to reach out for help and all of those agencies are prepared and know about the situation that you're living in and can help you to try and be safe. Um, in the situation that you're in or to safely leave the situation. If you are a friend or family member who knows someone who's experiencing domestic violence and wants to know how to best support them, those resources are also available and in fact there's um, sessions that are running about four times a week online to teach you how to do that. Um, And for the clients that are currently with their abusers, there's all sorts of online resources as well right now. People are doing online counseling, online groups, all of that kind of stuff. And so I think that the thing I would say is no matter who you are in this equation and are being impacted by the abuse, appropriate help is available, and all you need to do
0: is to reach out. Police are also asking for victims of violence to call for help. Officers are ready to respond, and they're adapting to the changing dynamics due to the pandemic.
2: Well, 100%. Those are often the most challenging calls because, you know, you need to go into someone's home which, in of itself, can be a a triggering action for a police officer entering someone's home you know you can't ever take that very lightly because it's someone's home it's It doesn't matter what the circumstances are some you know somebody lives in that space and it's their property and and you're now encroaching uh, on their space and interfering in their ability to enjoy their home or 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 the sanctity of their home. So yeah, it's one of the most difficult calls you'll ever deal with in normal circumstances. Now it's even, uh, there's more anxiety around it because you've got to go in, you've got this whole COVID thing. Typically you're dealing with people that, um, you know, it's, they're difficult circumstances. So you, you need to, you know, engage with the people who are involved. Often you're dealing with people who are victims. So they you need to comfort people. And that's, you know, you, you can talk about, You know social isolating and standing six feet away from someone but we're near in that in that environment where there's been lots of trauma and people are upset and you want to try and be empathetic and you want to be empathetic it's hard to do that from six feet away often so you know police officers are having to make you know decisions at the moment about how they're going to manage uh these issues and support people in difficult situations and um, it's a challenge, and uh, and you know, like I said before, we you know we're we're responding to these calls. We often know very little about them. It's an uncontrolled environment, and the situation unfolds often in dynamic circumstances.
0: So, once police have arrested someone, what happens next? There are questions about the justice system and how it's working through COVID-19. Courts across Canada are striving to maintain core operations while putting public health and safety first. Currently, many courts across the country are limiting physical access to the courthouses by the public. But emergency, urgent matters, and bail hearings are continuing. I should note, each jurisdiction is different, and the level of access is different depending on where you live. I turned to Judge Joanne Durant from the Alberta Provincial Court to shed some light on how technology is helping keep a lot of the cases moving through the courts here. She's the assistant chief judge at the Calgary Criminal Regional Division and is in charge of 16 criminal courtrooms in Calgary and 11 regional courts in Alberta. Well, Alberta was actually
5: pretty well placed to address some of the major changes that had to happen really quickly when the courts needed to respond to COVID-19 and the need for social distancing. It's important to remember that the courts are public buildings and the courts in Canada are open to the public. So as you know, Alberta actually has had for quite some time a virtual hearing office where bail hearings are conducted 16 hours a day across the province. Any paperwork is provided to the court electronically and the various players involved in a bail hearing, the Crown Prosecutor, Justice of the Peace, Duty Counsel and and an accused person may well be located in different places around the province while the bail hearing is actually conducted in a virtual courtroom. So we have remote scheduling in place as well. Lawyers can book matters online rather than having to make a physical appearance in the courtroom. From the criminal division perspective, our focus over the last month has been on in-custody matters. So we have continued to handle all of those matters, whether they're docket appearances, guilty pleas, lengthy sentencings, bail hearings, or in-custody trials. All of our courtrooms became remote appearance only very quickly, really just in a matter of days. In some of our courts, that means appearances are by telephone uh, for the crown prosecutors and defense counsel, with the accused appearing uh, via CCTV. several of our courts have now moved to Webex technology so the lawyers now appear by video in the courtroom and again the accused will appear via CCTV from wherever they happen to be held in custody across the province so right now physically in a courtroom the only people who are there are the judge and judges and the clerks Uh, although recently there was a trial in Edmonton which was run where the judge appeared remotely as well so that technology exists if it is needed. We are also really fortunate to have considerable video conferencing capabilities. So, for instance, in Calgary, three days a week, we have a judge appearing from Calgary via video conference into courtrooms quite some distance away from the city where the Crown prosecutor and the lawyers are appearing by telephone with, again, the accused appearing by CCTV from the custodial facility. So the courts have been very busy using technology that we've talked about using for quite some time, but we have very quickly put that talk into action really out of necessity in the last four weeks. So the court has also begun working now on a business resumption plan to ensure that we are ahead of the backlog of -of out-of-custody matters that's obviously growing across the province. And I expect that some of the technology that we have been using over the last month will actually be really helpful going forward once we get to our new normal. That will make things more efficient for the court and obviously for the public that the court serves as well.
0: I've received a lot of questions about bail. Listeners are concerned more people are getting out of custody during the pandemic.
5: Well, I'll begin by saying that the short answer is no, that people are not being released just because we're facing a pandemic. That's not how our system of bail works in Canada. There are many factors and many principles that are going on in the background that have to be considered long before we ever get to the issue of whether or not the pandemic is playing a role in people being released on bail. So we begin with the presumption of innocence. Anyone charged with a criminal offense is presumed innocent until they're found guilty by a court. That's fundamental to remember, and I always encourage people to think of themselves as being the one who's been charged or someone that they care about when we talk about these principles. There are also two very important statutes that are relevant when we talk about bail. The first is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the second is the Criminal Code of Canada. These two statutes provide protection for Canadians and actually guidance for judges, and it's the same law across the country since they're both federal statutes. The Charter says that any person charged with an offence has the right not to be denied reasonable bail without just cause. The criminal code contains what's called the principle of restraint, and what that section says is that a person charged with a criminal offence is to be given release at the earliest opportunity and on the least onerous conditions
0: that are appropriate in the circumstances. I also turn to veteran lawyer Balfour Durr for some insight. He has almost 40 years in the justice system, the first 10 as a prosecutor and the last 30 as a defence lawyer.
1: People should understand that it is the norm in Canada that bail will be granted. That's our starting position. We start from the position that people who are detained are going to be released. That's where we start. The prosecution, except in you know, certain circumstances, they have the responsibility to establish one of three grounds in order for someone to be detained. So they have to be able to show the court that the person is a flight risk. In other words, they won't show up for court or that they are a danger to the public if they are released or that it is against the administration of justice. In other words, the public perception of the administration of justice For this person to be released. If they cannot, if the prosecution cannot establish one of those three grounds, then bail will be granted to an accused person. And that's for any charge.
5: The third ground or reason for denying bail is where the issue of the pandemic has come up. Here the judge needs to decide if it's necessary to detain someone in custody to maintain confidence in the administration of justice having regard to all of the circumstances. Now, there's a list of things in the criminal code the judge might think about here, including how strong is the grounds case or how serious is the offense and how long someone might go to jail if they're found guilty. But the list isn't exhaustive. And now the issue of the pandemic has been added as a consideration in this part of the code. So judges haven't all agreed across the country about the role COVID-19 plays in determining whether someone should be granted bail. And again, I'm working on the basis of your question that the concern is that this person would never have otherwise been granted bail unless we were facing a pandemic. Some judges have accepted that inmates in a prison are at a more elevated risk of catching or spreading COVID-19. The concern may relate specifically to an accused who might have underlying health or age-related issues. The concern might be for the correctional staff becoming at greater risk. They're essential workers, and they all leave the custodial facilities and go home to their families. But other judges haven't agreed that people in jail are at a greater risk of catching COVID-19 and have accepted evidence that there is much being done now in the custodial facilities across the country to ensure that the people in the jails are also safe from this virus. So there are a few really important takeaways, though, that I hope will assist. First, each case is going to be decided on its merits alone. Every offender is different. The facts surrounding the commission of every offense is different. There may be a big difference between someone who is accused of a property offense as opposed to someone who's charged with a violent offense when it comes to the judge being satisfied that that person can safely be released. Each accused person may well have a very different bail plan to offer to the court as well. Some are far more fulsome than others. But the other really important takeaway and why I wanted to explain how the bail system works is that COVID-19 is just one factor a judge will consider in determining whether somebody should be released from custody. It's a new factor but it is still just one factor.
1: The people who are being allowed out or being kept in, it comes to, down to how the judge perceives that particular circumstance. If the judge is concerned about public safety, I have no doubt that that judge or any, any other judge like him or her would have no hesitation in keeping someone in custody, coronavirus or not they're going to say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, it's just, it's too dangerous for you to be out on the street. Where judges are exercising some discretion and allowing people out is on those marginal cases. Those cases where it could go either way. On an ordinary day, it could go either way. So judges in those circumstances are, are saying, look, I'm, here I'm gonna err on the side of release because I I think the person's risk is manageable when they're in the community. And for that reason, I think overall, it might be better for all of us if we have this person out on the street, they're gonna be isolated in their home, or I may even put conditions on where they have to be on 24-hour house arrest within their own home.
0: One of the most common questions I've received is why people in custody aren't simply left to self-isolate in their cells.
1: You know the remand centers, jails are places where it is virtually impossible to have isolation, social distancing. Uh, you you can't. There's just not enough room to keep people apart. There's two sides to this. One side is well, what what do we care? Let's just stick them in jail and and sort of it will work itself out. And, You know they're just a bunch of criminals in there anyway is the attitude no doubt that some people have that is of course um, the the wrong thinking it's it's wrong for so many reasons not the least of which is uh, people for instance in the remand center are there because they're awaiting trial they're not been convicted of anything they're not guilty at that stage, they're they're waiting to be found guilty or not guilty. So they deserve as much protection as anybody else.
0: So that's people waiting to stand trial. But what about the people who've been convicted and sent to jail or prison? If a person is sentenced to two years or less, they go into a provincial facility. If they're sentenced to two years plus a day or more, they go into a federal penitentiary. To give further insight into what the situation is in our correctional facilities, I turned to Dr. Patrick Bailey. He's been a forensic psychologist for nearly three decades. He's also a lawyer and was admitted to the bar about 10 years ago.
6: Most individuals are not in single cells. Um, They are in double bunked cells within uh, most of the correctional institutions, whether it's remand provincial jails or federal penitentiaries. Um, So there's exposure at that level. There are also uh, guards who are coming in and out of the institutions uh, on a daily basis to cover off their shift schedule. So um, there's potential for exposure not from other inmates, um, but also from the guards. And then there's the issue that I raised earlier of the transitory nature of the correctional population. So folks in remand, folks in provincial institutions, a very high turnover of those individuals. Some who are coming in, some are going out. Yes, there's more stability in the federal facilities because people are, are automatically serving longer sentences given the nature of federal incarceration. Um, but they're still going to be double bunked. They're still going to be exposed to guards. Um, things like delivering meals to the cells may avoid having individuals um, uh, congregating in a dining hall, for example. If, the, if there's a way to release the individual into the community that doesn't jeopardize public safety, they are technically still serving their sentence and so there are conditions that can be imposed as part of that sentence that if there's a violation of any of those conditions then the individual is back in custody so in 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 the early days of the outbreak uh, the facilities were um, seemingly spared from having a significant number of cases but over the last week or 10 days we're seeing a number of facilities that now have positive cases uh, amongst individuals being kept in custody And so there's a significant likelihood uh, or risk of those cases spreading. And so, again, as people come out of the institution two, three weeks from now, a month from now, there's much greater likelihood that they've been exposed to somebody who was COVID positive, and therefore they're bringing the virus back into the community. I would add that in terms of this decision about bail, there have been a number of Ontario judges who have said that Putting somebody into remand and exposing them to the potential for contracting COVID-19 is a factor to be considered in whether or not this person should be granted bail.
0: Dr. Bailey says it's important to remember not everyone who's in custody is a violent offender.
6: Uh, And then you do have that category of individuals who've committed assaults, Uh, assault causing bodily harm, aggravated assault, sexual assault, sexual interference. And those are the cases where the parole board is going to say, or the remand authorities or the courts are going to say, this individual poses a level of risk that was unacceptable for us to release them to the community. That individual has to stay in custody. If we were able to get half of the individuals who are in custody back into the community and out of that custodial setting, we would reduce the likelihood that they're going to get exposed to the virus as those numbers increase in the correctional facilities. And we'd still have all of the violent offenders kept in custody, so there wouldn't be a significant risk to community safety. Nobody is saying, open the doors and let all of these folks out. And when this is all over, we'll see how many of them come back. What we're trying to do is take a judicious look at who are the individuals that we can safely manage in the community, without jeopardizing community safety as a way of reducing the likelihood that these individuals are going to get exposed to the virus when they're in custody and potentially bring that back to the community when they eventually get out.
0: Many of our listeners have expressed concern about how those people who've been released will be monitored in the community.
6: And so probation and parole uh, have come up with their own ways of continuing to monitor people. Uh, We also have a number of technologies that simply weren't there when uh, legislation was originally written. So things like the uh, ankle monitors, um, which require the individual to maintain a a particular uh, perimeter space. They can't go out of their own uh, property, for example. Um, Geotagging on telephones. Um, And so if the individual uh, wants to leave their phone at home while they go out for a walk, um, and there's a call that comes in and, and they're not able to answer it, then they're going to be known to be outside of their perimeter area. Um, Similarly, if they're keeping their phone on them, then we know where they are. So we have some technology um, available that allows to monitor where individuals are where they're in the community. Um, But again, the the majority of the individuals that we're talking about would be nonviolent offenders uh, where there is not a significant risk to the community for them to be released earlier in their sentence while still being monitored.
0: One of the overwhelming concerns that listeners have expressed to me is the impact all of these measures are having on victims.
6: One of the challenges of the justice system is that it gives a voice to victims, but frankly doesn't pay a great deal of attention to that voice. Requesting victim impact statements, um, allowing victims to participate in parole hearings, and requiring notification to victims before uh, review board hearings for individuals who've been found NCR, sets up the very understandable expectation that the views of victims are going to be taken into account in whatever decision gets made. And frankly, in the majority of those circumstances, um, the victim's input has a negligible effect. We set people up for the expectation that they should be listened to and then don't do much in terms of giving weight to that information from victims. And so... The release of an individual from custody, the decision being made by the parole board is whether or not the level of risk is manageable in the community, not whether or not the victim is going to be put off or offended by the decision to release the individual.
0: Another area of the justice system impacted by COVID-19 are jury trials. Alberta Court of Queen's Bench Chief Justice Mary Moreau addressed this issue in a recent press conference via video link with reporters.
7: Our actions were guided by a pandemic response plan that had uh, been started, that is, the roots of that plan uh, weeks before, as we heard more and more uh, from the international scene about the progress Mm -hmm. of uh, the pandemic. And so the uh, first move was really preparatory and that involved uh, suspending jury selections and jury trials because those involved congregations of over 50 people. So that we were directed in through the chief medical officer. We're gonna take guidance from the chief medical officer in terms of when gatherings of over 15 people in one location are permitted we're not going to issue jury notices until we know that that is a safe place for juries their jury rooms the courtrooms etc um and i think that uh, in the circumstances we do hear from members of a jury panel if they have special issues that are employment related or health related etc that would prevent them from sitting on a jury and so i think the 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 issue is a real one for people just returning to employment Um, we've also been active in suggesting to crown and defense that if there are uh, ways to consider re-electing to judge alone and the, the crown Uh, agreeing to that if that re-election is coming a little later in the game the Crown needs to consent to it but in these difficult times uh, the Jordan waters that we are um, in right now um, and and trying to plow through as well as the pandemic I'm hopeful that we that consideration would be given by the bar to uh, bringing down the number of jury trials we have but certainly those will not proceed until it's safe for the public to come into to our courthouse.
0: Delays in the courts due to COVID-19 also have many people wondering if Jordan will apply. I've talked about Jordan in a few other episodes. It refers to a Supreme Court of Canada ruling called R versus Jordan that sets rules for how long a case can take from start to finish. Alberta Court of Queen's Bench Chief Justice Mary Moreau also addressed this concern.
7: Uh, The Jordan decision did provide for exceptional circumstances that are beyond the control of the Crown, the court, the defense, and it's my view that we are in that circumstance right now with the um, prescription. Uh, on having congregations of more than 50 people in any um, given courtroom uh, courtroom and um, even I think we're down to 15 in uh, locations which would prevent us from holding jury trials because if you count the number of jurors needed in a jury trial and you add counsel in the court you're already at 15. So in that exceptional circumstances or circumstance um, my view is that the clock is not running However, uh, the challenge will be once we are back in gear um, in in quasi normal circumstances. And there there is some uncertainty as to how long we will have as individual courts to move towards um, getting matters on for trial. So uh, that's why I've opened up this uh, discussion about remote hearings that in my view can be done in most cases. Uh, For example, um, in um, a situation of a sexual assault charge, if the charge involves a young child in this province, generally that evidence will come into the court by way of video. And so um, we already have a remote element to that particular hearing. If there is consent to having the accused appear by CCTV and subject to cross-examination by CCTV if the accused gives evidence on his or her behalf, then it's possible to run even trials in this new remote uh, context and therefore work actively to deal with our Jordan problem. Because obviously I make no bones about the fact that the Jordan problem has gotten worse because we've had to adjourn uh, a number of criminal trials.
0: These were some of the most common questions listeners had about what's happening in the justice system. And realistically, there are some questions we can't address because some issues are different depending on the jurisdiction. This is a situation that's changing on a daily basis. So obviously some of these answers could be dated in a week. We simply don't know. This episode is meant to help alleviate some of the concerns and misinformation that's out there and hopefully give you some peace of mind. As things progress, we might look to do another episode. If you're a victim of crime and you've been impacted by the changes brought on because of this pandemic, I would love to hear from you. Also, please consider sharing this episode with those who are expressing concerns about our justice system. Thank you for joining me for this special episode of Crime Beat. If this is your first time listening, please go back and check out the other stories I've shared. We'll return to bringing you compelling cases and stories in the next episode. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. You can send me a message on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crimebeat, And I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.
3: New on Showcase.
0: You were in a concentration camp in World War II.
3: I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling
2: book. But I found something there. Someone. We must
6: keep
7: living.
6: Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new, Sundays, on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.